the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando, in uh, the city beautiful, Orlando, Florida. Uh, Now, we get on the air with the engineering skills of Pete Paquette. Andrew Herdliska is the producer, and I want to introduce to you Brian Loritz. He's in Raleigh, North Carolina, lead pastor of the Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. And uh, his book is out, The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. Brian, welcome to Orlando. I trust things are well with you. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Brian, tell me about this book, and I'm, I'm intrigued with the introduction. It's a question. What's going on? That's how you open your book. Yeah, yeah. So, in general, I wrote the book because I just feel like uh, when it comes to matters of race, the church is taking more of a defensive posture. So, for example, you know, some racially charged event happens, uh, the news cycle spikes, and, um, you know, people are like, "Uh, what do I say? I need something to read. I talk with pastors all the time who reach out to me for advice on, you know, what do I do this Sunday? Do I change my sermon? And it's great. It's heartfelt. It all comes from a great place. Uh, But when the news cycle dies down and moves on to something else, uh, we tend to likewise turn the volume down on these conversations and move to something else until the next event happens. So we're always playing defense. So one of the things I tried to do in the opening chapters of the book is to say when Jesus talked about the church in Matthew 16, when he tells Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church in the gates of hell— will not prevail against it. Gates guard, gates defend, gates protect, gates play defense. So Jesus postures hell as being on the defensive, which means he pictures the church as being on the offensive. And so the church needs to stop just reacting and responding to matters of race. We need to just stop playing defense. We need to play offense. And this book gives us a playbook for how to do that. And then you move from uh, that opening topic of playing offense to this interesting topic, seeing through the fog. Uh, Explain that to us, Brian. Yeah, in that chapter, seeing through the fog, I just talk about we need to have kind of a a picture. What is the desired destination? What's the goal that we're trying to accomplish here? And it's at this point where I say diversity is not the goal. Um, You can get people from all different backgrounds in a church sitting next to each other. That doesn't mean they're really unified. And so seeing through the fog, I just say when the Bible talks about the church of Jesus Christ, in fact, Jesus' last prayer prior to the cross, John 17, was not a prayer for diversity. It wasn't a prayer for uniformity. It was a prayer for unity. And so that's why in the subtitle of the book, I talk about not racial reconciliation, but I use the phrase ethnic unity, not even ethnic diversity. But what does it really mean to have different people together marching towards God's desired picture for his church, which is unity? Uh, Next topic I want you to talk about, communal identity and ethnic unity. What's that mean? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I, I just say when we talk about matters of race, there tends to be uh, two polarized responses. On one extreme, there is color blindness. And you have a lot of people who, again, it's coming from a great place who are saying, come on, Brian, I don't really see color. Well, I appreciate that. And I really do understand the sentiment behind it. Most of the times when people say they don't see color, what they're saying is, I'm not holding this against you. I'm not being prejudiced. I'm not being biased or playing favorites. Uh, but that's less than the biblical vision. John says in John chapter 5, when I looked up into heaven, I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. How could John on sight see differences unless he's seeing differences in color? So our bodies, no matter what the color or ethnicity, are not a fruit of the fall. They are a part of our future eternal reality. So one side is colorblindness. On the other side is what I call ethnic idolatry. There are a lot of people who all they see, all they can see is their own ethnicity and uh, maybe some bad things that have happened to them historically, and they judge people through that one lens. Well, this falls short of the biblical vision as well. Um, it's the gospel that becomes our identity. Uh, it's not my scars uh, that becomes my identity. It's Christ's scars that become my identity. And so the gospel doesn't call us to colorblindness or ethnic idolatry. But because my identity is in Christ, it doesn't subjugate, it doesn't, excuse me, eradicate my ethnicity, but it does call me to subjugate my ethnicity to the identity of Christ. Brian Loritz is our guest. He's in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're talking about his book, The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. And Brian, we've arrived at this topic, the practices of ethnic unity. What are they? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I'm just really drawing on Paul and his letter to the Ephesians. And one of the things that I point out is that just about all the churches Paul planted were multi-ethnic churches. So if you just read through the book of Acts as Paul walks into various towns to plant a church, he kind of always has two stops. The first stop is the synagogue. He wants to preach Christ to the Jews, mm-hmm. and he does that, and some Jews come to faith in Jesus. But his next stop is typically some area of that town where Gentiles uh, really populate. So in Athens, it's Mars Hill, for example. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, he's in Corinth. It says that he reasoned with Jews and Greeks. And so now he's got some Gentiles who come to faith, and he doesn't start two separate churches. He puts them in one church. This is very important for us to understand that when he's writing churches like the church at Ephesus, he's writing to a multi-ethnic church. And so when he calls them to walk in unity, a part of what that means is ethnic unity. And then he gives uh, kind of uh, a playbook for it. He tells them, I want you to walk um, in humility and patience and gentleness with one another. Well, if you think about those three terms in particular, humility, patience, and gentleness, they all presuppose that I'm doing life with someone who's different than me. So patience, for example, means that I'm dealing with a person who may be moving at a different pace in a certain area than I am. So embedded in all these terms, uh, implicit in them are differences. And so we unpack those terms and talk about the practices of ethnic unity. Beware of a new vision with an old culture. Explain that to us, Brian. Yeah, we just draw on Jesus' teaching here where he talks about no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And obviously Jesus is not being ageist. He's not, uh, he's not attacking uh, seasoned saints, I should say. Uh, instead, Jesus is dealing with uh, a culture that is not elastic, right? And so back then, wineskins were kind of these leathery uh, kind of containers that uh, when you put new wine into new wineskins, uh, the fumes from the new wine would push against the new wineskin. The new wineskin could uh, stretch and expand. Uh, but old wineskins had no more room to stretch and expand. They were out of elasticity. And because of that, you never put new wine into old wineskins because then you'd have an explosion, a mess on your hands. And so what we talk about here is, is that so many churches get a vision for ethnic unity, and they just look to the Bible, but they don't really consider the culture of that church. 
and they've got to do cultural work in making sure that the culture is at a place to where they can receive the new wineskin vision of ethnic unity. Brian, I want you to uh, explain to us uh, this topic. It's number six, proclaiming a robust gospel. What's a robust gospel? Yeah, we, we do a lot of historical and biblical work in this chapter and try to um, address the question, how did we arrive with where we're at today? And what I mean by that is you have so many people today when the subject of race comes up, and it particularly happens in conservative circles, where you'll, you'll get a lot of well-meaning conservative Christians who'll say, eh, I get that, uh, I don't like that, can we just preach the gospel? as if the gospel has nothing to say about how we relate to others, and particularly the ethnic other. So the average conservative evangelical thinks of the gospel solely in vertical terms, meaning my relationship with God and the fact that I'm saved by grace through faith. Now, this is a very important point. Uh, we are saved by grace through faith, but that's not all that the gospel entails. And so we trace back to how we got here historically to the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which happened in the earlier part of the 20th century. And it was kind of a great divorce in the church. So the fundamentalists and their progeny today would be conservative evangelicals. They said the gospel is really just vertical. It's just you and your relationship with God. The great thing about this is they really privileged uh, the Bible and, and truth, right? And so they started a whole lot of... Um, uh, seminaries and Bible colleges and Christian camps, and really, really good. The problem is the fundamentalists, because they solely saw the gospel in vertical terms, they really didn't participate in mass in the civil rights movement because their gospel didn't offer them a framework for that. On the other side were the modernists. Today, we would call their progeny the, the liberals or progressives. They said the gospel is just horizontal. It's loving your neighbor. Uh, they did march in the streets of Selma and Birmingham and other places during the Civil Rights Movement. But because they only saw the gospel in horizontal terms, it was just a matter of time before they fell over to the abyss of heresy. They didn't have any truth to anchor them. So if you were to ask Jesus, is the gospel vertical or is it horizontal? Jesus would say it's both. So, for example, when Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment? He would say it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. That's vertical. But he doesn't end there. He says, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, of course, we understand that the great parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan, he, he tells that parable in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is pretty much saying, your neighbor is everyone you meet, even the ethnically other. And so a robust gospel is vertical and horizontal. Now, I am not saying we are saved by how we treat other people. Instead, what I am saying is the way that we know that we're saved is evidenced in how we treat other people, specifically the ethnically other. Brian Loritz is our guest. The book, The Offensive Church. More with Brian. Right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Brian Loritz is our guest. He's in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're talking about his book, The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. Brian, we've arrived at this topic, practicing. We talked about proclaiming a robust gospel now you do a whole segment called Practicing a Robust Gospel. Tell us more. Yeah, one of the things I say in this chapter is that when it comes to gospel witness, gospel culture trumps gospel doctrine all day long. And what I mean by this is, you know, a person may go to a church's website and see their doctrinal statement and go, okay, this is great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come check them out. But their doctrinal statement on their website can check all the boxes. But if by the time they get to that church, the culture of that church is not hospitable, it's unfriendly, it's unkind, it's contentious, chances are that person's not going to come back. 
And they're not going to come back, not because the church didn't believe the right things. It's that the culture of the church didn't practice the right things. So how we treat one another, the culture of the church, trumps gospel doctrine all day long. I'm not saying that to minimize at all what we believe. Um, There's such a thing as orthodoxy, which means right beliefs, and orthopraxy, which means right practices. Those two things shouldn't be pitted against each other, but they should be connected to one another. And when it comes to kind of right beliefs, if you were to just kind of go through the New Testament and say, let me whittle it all down, what is the thing that we have to get right in our culture? It would be love. Jesus said by this, will all men know that you're my disciples? It's by the love that you have for one another. Or Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, would say, now by the faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Uh, and so that then begs the question, what exactly is love? And in the Greek world, there were several words for love. Uh, one was uh, eros, uh, which we get such English words as erotic from. Um, eros for sure has sexual connotations to it, but it's, it's more than that. Eros is really infatuation. And there are a lot of churches that kind of, when it comes to multi-ethnic stuff, they have eros, which means they're, they're infatuated with the ideal, but their infatuation with the ideal causes them to bypass with people who are actually there. Uh, I can tell you of, of pastors that I know who sadly have been removed from their church because they pushed really hard for a multi-ethnic church, uh, but their current church was homogenous. And in other words, they fell more in love with what could be than what they actually had. So eros is not enough. Uh, another idea of, uh, of love is phileo. Uh, it's the idea of friendship. The city of Philadelphia is named after this. Um, friendship is the idea of affinity. But phileo is not enough to see a multi-ethnic church happen because in a multi-ethnic church, we're talking about people getting together who don't necessarily have a natural affinity for one another. Instead, we're called to agape. And agape is sacrificial love, born out in acts that benefit and bless the object of the loved. And so it's doing what's best for others. That's what we're called to do, and we can only do that by the fruit and power of the Holy Spirit. And we unpack that in that chapter. Now I want you to dive into this topic, reliable leadership. Where does that fit? Yes, you know, I, you know nothing of lasting eternal good happens apart from um, loving, kind, courageous, strong leadership. Um, whether we're talking in marriage, uh, whether we're talking at work, family, you know, parents with their kids, um, or whether we're talking the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, and so what we've got to have is leaders who have a great conviction and, yes, a great sensitivity to their audience, but, but who cast a vision and take the necessary steps to see it happen. One of the questions we ask in this chapter is, do you want to be mega or multi-ethnic? Um, and unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ sacrifice their biblical convictions and principles on the altar of nickels and noses. And we've got to have leaders who've got a spine here, who catch a vision for this. And, and let me just say this. I don't think every church should be multi-ethnic. I think that's a very important point. I do think every church should reflect their community. And so when a pastor looks at their mission field and says, hey, our community is multi-ethnic, and maybe our church is not multi-ethnic, this is the direction we need to go in, of course there's a place for planning carefully and moving at the right pace and not moving too fast and being kind and loving, but it's going to take some courage and the willingness to lose some people. Um, in the church. So that's what we deal with in that chapter. Next topic for you, relational environments. Uh, what does that mean? Yes, we, um, I, I've, I've got a friend of mine, he, he says proximity breeds empathy, uh, suspicion, uh, excuse me, um, uh, distance breeds suspicion. Um, you know, w- when I look at the average Christian's posts on social media, uh, when it comes to matters of race, 
I'm grieved not so much by what they say, but by just how different the responses are. And oftentimes I come away going, wow, I don't think we're really doing life with one another. And so if we're really going to grow in unity, we've got to create environments in our churches where we can come together shoulder to shoulder and process with one another our various perspectives, not in an attempt to clone each other in our own image, but to just come close. And what I've discovered is having friends of various ethnicities doesn't necessarily change my convictions, but it does, it does help, help to kind of buff off those, those abrasive edges. I'm now much more filled with kindness and love and empathy because I'm doing life not just with people who see it the way that I see it, but I'm doing life with people of vastly different perspectives. Specifically in this chapter, we talk about that there's three kinds of people in the church when it comes to the issue of gospel and race. There's the ready, the reluctant, and the resistant. And we talk about how all three of those uh, need to be in close community with one another if we're going to actually see growth. And then we talk about three other commitments that have to be made uh, in order to see this happen. And that is, we've got to make a commitment to love one another. We've talked some about that, to lament with each other, and to actually live with one another. Now, I'm not talking about moving into each other's homes, but a commitment to deep abiding community, especially in the tough times. What do you write about, uh, Brian, in the epilogue? Yeah, in the epilogue, I just try to, you know, give a summary, like most epilogues do, of, uh, of what I've been talking about in the whole book. But then I also want to leave on a note of hope. In fact, all throughout the book, I am not so much interested in just laying bare the problems. I want to offer some real solutions. And so in, in the epilogue, I just kind of end on a note of hope. I give some solutions. In fact, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we, we need people who are, going to be who are going to be committed not so much to activism, but to reconciliation. Now, praise God, we need activists. As a black man, I praise God for activists. Um, most of the privileges that I enjoy as a black man today are because of activists of a generation or two before me. Praise God for them. But activists tend to be issue-focused. Reconcilers tend to be people-focused. We need people who are going to do the hard work of connecting people together across the racial divide. What do you want people to take from this discussion, Brian, uh, and uh, the, the, the different points we've hit? What, what do you want them to apply to their lives? Well, let me just say, first of all, um, at the end of each chapter, there are discussion questions. I would highly encourage that people read this book, not in isolation, but in community, and particularly in community with uh, people who are ethnically different than them, who have different perspectives, and to really wrestle together through this book. Um, you will find that this book is not contentious. Um, you know, if I, were to, if I were to compare it to my favorite uh, uh, Mexican restaurant and their salsa, this is not uh, spicy and hot, hot, hot. It's kind of medium. Uh, so it's very much palatable, and it's meant to be processed within the fabric of community. So that's the first thing I would say. Engage the discussion questions in diverse community. Uh, but ultimately, I want to see people leave here um, more committed than ever to, to what the Bible tells us is the supreme sign of the believer, which is love, and love for other people, and not just other people, but the ethnically other. Ryan, how did you get into the ministry? Well, I grew up the son of a, of a preacher, and uh, at a very young age, I just knew instinctively this is what God was going to call me uh, to do. Uh, at the age of 17, I had a good friend of mine who collapsed and died of a heart attack, mm. which, really, which really jarred me. And um, so it was sitting at his funeral. Uh, his name was Craig Tarleton that I realized I could check out of here at any given moment, and I wanted to get serious about my life. And so that was a very sobering experience for me. I headed off to Bible college and then to seminary and worked at several churches. Uh, like most people, um, I found my passion through pain. And when I talk about my passion, specifically this area of ethnic unity, 
And uh, I just realized there's a hole in the wall, and I wanted God to use me among many other people to address uh, this hole in America's wall. And uh, that's kind of how I set out about this. Brian Loritz has written the book. Make sure you get it. It's a good read. The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. Folks, uh, uh, we're going to be back in just a minute, but I I need to remind you again, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. We're ready, and you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com. OrlandoDreamers.com. We need to hear from you. Uh, just tell us of your interest, uh, whether you're for this, whether you think it's a good idea for Orlando to try and become a Major League Baseball city. And uh, we'll be right back, folks. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Brian Loritz, our guest in that first segment in Raleigh, North Carolina, talking about his book, The Offensive Church. Well, we go north from Raleigh, North Carolina, up to the suburbs of Philadelphia. We found Fred Zaspel there pastor at Reformed Baptist Church in Franconia, Pennsylvania. He's an adjunct professor. He's an executive editor. His book is out, How to Read and Understand the Psalms. Fred, welcome to Orlando. It's so nice to meet you. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. Uh, Why did you write the book, Fred? Why was it important? I've had a long interest in the Psalms. Of course, just like most Christians, it's been a favorite of of Christians for for all the centuries, and uh, recently, well, a few years ago, I was planning ahead for my own preaching schedule at church, looking into the Psalms and doing research on it, and uh, that just kind of grew, and then my association with Bruce Waltke, the co-author, I learned so much from him. He is a legend in Old Testament studies and in the Psalms studies in particular, and so I teamed up with him, and, and we went to work on this. When you open your book with an introduction to the Psalms, and Psalm 1 is uh, listed here, uh, fill us in. Well, we start off um, giving a broad introduction to the Psalms and what we intend to do with the book, and also an introduction to the Psalter just broadly. But we focus on Psalm 1 there, because Psalm 1 has been long recognized since the early centuries of the Church as the introduction to the Psalter. It's not placed there just randomly, it's placed there for a purpose. So Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man, the righteous man, who delights in the law of the Lord. And so it's been long recognized that Psalm 1 begins the Psalter by telling us who the Psalter is for, who is intended to be reading these Psalms, well, more specifically, who is it that can sing God's praises? And the answer is, it's not just anybody. God does not accept the praises of the wicked. God intends his praises to be sung by those who uh, submit to his word, delight in his instruction, and that's so Psalm 1 sets the stage for that. Actually, by the way, Psalm 2 was not placed there randomly either, but it's the second step of the introduction to the Psalms, where it introduces us to the subject of the Psalter, the hero, if you will, and that's the great king, uh, my son whom I've installed on my holy hill, who will reign over all of his enemies. And so Psalms begins with uh, introducing us who can read these psalms, who are these intended for, who can sing it, and then let's talk about who we can sing about and who's the subject of the Psalter, and that's Psalm 2, and then we go from there. What is the definition of the word Psalter? What's that mean? Well, it's a musical instrument, but um, it's used broadly now because of the reference to the psalms, the book of the psalms, is often called the Psalter. I got it. Yep. Let's, let's move to topic two in your book, <clears throat> hermeneutics, and you'll have to explain that word. Interpre- uh-huh. Interpreting the Psalms as believers. <clears throat> yeah, her- hermeneutics is simply the science of, of interpretation, and so you can have hermeneutics in every field, but with regard to biblical studies in particular, it's how to interpret the Bible. And so we try to establish guidelines 
and uh, biblically informed guidelines for how the Bible is to be interpreted. What we look at in chapter 2 here is uh, specifically guidelines for interpreting the Psalms, and not just interpreting the Psalms, but interpreting the Psalms as believers, and that's, that's important for us to say that. So we, so we look at the Psalms and say, what, what is it about the Psalms that demands that we, uh, to, to, for us to understand it correctly? And so we have to understand it on its own terms. We have to understand it within the biblical canon. We have to understand it within its historical setting, and we use all of those tools to do that. But we also emphasize that we're believers here, and we're approaching the Word of God. And to approach the Word of God, we don't approach it as though we are mastered over it, but we approach it as it's Scripture. It is the Word of God, and uh, we are to approach it submissively. And only as we approach it submissively and looking to learn from God and to obey God and what we find there and to believe his promises, uh, are we reading it correctly and will we understand? And only then will we understand it correctly. So it's those kinds of guidelines. What is the mindset we go to? And the bottom line is uh, we look at all of these tools that we have for his historical investigation, uh, for understanding the words and their own usage, uh, whether in the Hebrew and uh, all these kinds of things that we look at to understand correctly. But we understand also that we don't ab approach the Psalms as any other book. We approach the Psalms as the Word of God. And so we approach it as believers, humbly, to learn from God, to believe his promises, and to, to follow his instruction. Fred, Fred Zaspel is our guest. We're talking about his book, How to Read and Understand the Psalms. Topic three, the historical setting of the Psalms. And, and Fred, you get into Psalm three and four here. Yeah, what we do here primarily is look at not only the the historical setting broadly, but in particular we emphasize the superscripts of the Psalms. That's those little statements at the top of the Psalms that you often see in your Bibles in italics. You know, it's a Psalm of David or to the choir master or something like that, some indications like that. There are 14 of those Psalms, I think there are 55 of those Psalms that are Psalms of David where it's specifically said. And then there are, um, no, there are more than 50 like 70, uh, more than 70 of the Psalms are of David. But 14 of the Psalms not only say of David, but they provide some historical setting for the Psalms. Like a Psalm of David, Psalm 3, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So David puts that there for us to understand the setting of the Psalm and to find out what's going on. Now part of what we do in that chapter is we um, defend the genuineness of those superscripts. Uh, critical theories have abounded for more than 100 years now, and they have left uh, much of psalm studies uh, with a negative view of the superscripts. Um, one Bible, I think it was the New English Bible, even left the superscripts out altogether. And so we emphasize that the, every, every scrap of manuscript evidence that we have has these superscripts there. There is no textual reason to deny them. And in fact, there are other reasons for showing their genuineness. This is what David himself or the other psalmists put there in order for us to understand something about the psalm. Now, in at least 14 of those, he provides a specific historical setting for us. And so it's incumbent upon us, if we're going to understand, say, Psalm 3, to go back to those chapters in First Samuel and understand this, or Second Samuel, and understand the uh, the historical setting of when he fled from Absalom, his son, and the situation there, and then with that in mind, you go back to Psalm three, and well, then you have this with this historical framework, you see allusions to that in the Psalm and how he works his way uh, through that, and it illuminates the Psalm entirely. Psalm four then is another example of that, where he provides a historical setting, and uh, we, we uh, bring that out as well. So the sample psalms that we have there are intended to illustrate the importance of the superscripts in the psalms uh, and their, the historical setting that they provide. And by the way, one thing that we emphasize there, and this was Bruce Waltke's work, he has done some tremendous work on this, uh, some cutting-edge research, uh, to demonstrate that 
at the top of um, 55 of the Psalms, we have that note, to the choir master. Always appears first in the superscript. And what he has demonstrated is that those uh, expressions, to the choir master, are not superscripts to those psalms. They are, in fact, postscripts to the previous psalms. And there's a long history of why that, how that works, and it might be a little bit confusing. But the, the superscripts provide two levels of information, authorship and performance. And the performance aspect, to the choir master, always comes first, and it is because that aspect is actually a postscript. There are other examples of that in the Old Testament, uh, psalms written elsewhere in the Old Testament where they have that uh, superscript, then the psalm itself, and then the postscript, and that's what these are as well. So we've tried to make that contribution uh, to the studies as well. But all of this is part of the historical setting of the psalms to show how that's, that historical view is important for interpretation. Fred, <clears throat> Fred Zaspel is our guest. We're talking about his book. How to Read and Understand the Psalms. Talk to us about the royal orientation of the Psalms. What does that mean, Fred? Well, what we mean there, and this is, this is actually very important for, this is one of the most important um, pieces of, of information that I think we can have for interpreting the Psalms. The Psalms are oriented toward the king. It's a royal orientation in the Psalms. That is, the Psalms are written by the king, they're written about the king, but he is the major subject of the psalms. Now, that's important because when we read the psalms, we can tend too much to individualize the point of reference, as though the psalm is written about me, or as though it's some um, average pious Israelite writing this psalm, and it's not. It's the king. It's the king who's written it, or it's the king who is in view who is being talked about, and we know that for many of the reasons. The, uh, the setting has the, the person under attack, but it's military attack, and he's promised success. He's promised success in establishing the kingdom. There are often international repercussions for the success or the failure of the king, of the, the person involved in the psalm. And so if we look at this as though um, this is just talking about uh, interpersonal relationships and the people who are opposed to me and giving me a hard time. We miss the point. The point is the king who's under attack, and it's the king who um, uh, is promised success, and it's the king who's lamenting and asking God for help and so on. And, and that is, is enormously important for understanding how to read the Psalms. It's not first of all about us. It becomes about us later, but first of all, it's about him. And that then, in turn, lays the groundwork in the larger canon of Scripture to see how the Psalms point ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the king in the Psalms foreshadows the great king. David was promised a son, a royal son, who would reign on his throne forever. And throughout the Psalter, as well as through Samuel as well, but throughout the Psalter we find David... Uh, in many of his expressions, foreshadowing Jesus. When we find David lamenting, we will often find in the New Testament, David's words put on the lips of Jesus. Fred Zaspel is our guest. We have to take a break, Fred. We'll be right back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're tuned into AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Fred Zaspel is uh, our guest, pastor at Reformed Baptist Church in Franconia, Pennsylvania, uh, suburbs of Philadelphia. Fred, we've arrived at uh, topic five, the liturgical setting of the Psalms. Songs of Ascent, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Uh, uh, tell us more about this. I'm interested. Yeah, what we're pointing out there is that the Psalms were not written originally for private use. The Psalms were written for use in temple worship. And there are a thousand indications of that. One of them is what I've already mentioned to the choir master. This is intended to be used uh, there with the congregation gathered around the king at the temple. 
Um, there are a lot of references to the temple, to the house, to Mount Zion, uh, which is, of course, the place of the temple. Um, all of these indications come together. It talks about the musical instruments. There are uh, references to the banners and the, uh, the various trappings of temple worship. Sometimes there'll be a thank offering that's mentioned or the sacrifice that's mentioned. They're just endless indications that the psalms were intended originally to be used in worship at the temple. And so the psalms of the songs of ascents, uh, that's um, Psalms 120 to 34. These psalms that are uh, written as the pilgrims make their way to the temple, uh, looking ahead and. To, to the pilgrimage there to the temple, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, both are enthronement psalms. These are psalms that were sung in temple worship at the enthronement of a king. So when the new king is appointed, the successor of David takes the throne, and these psalms are, are sung to and about that king. But, of course, they go beyond that king. As I mentioned in the chapter 4, there's this royal orientation that, these kings actually foreshadow David's greater son, the great king who will come. And so the Psalms work in that anticipatory way, looking ahead to the king. So this liturgical setting shows the temple setting of the Psalms that they were used in worship. And so when David hands it over to the choir master, he really, in essence, gives it to us to sing. Now, let's get into Hebrew poetry. Psalm 133, Psalm 121, Psalm 23. Uh, tell us about this, Fred. Yeah, um, poetry is, is of course, a, a big subject when you come to the Psalter, um, because the whole book is poetry, and it's not the only book of poetry in the Bible, of course. Proverbs is poetry, and there are poetic elements found through the prophets in various places as well. But what we want to do here is examine what are the distinctives of Hebrew poetry, and how will that help us to understand the Psalms? It's been said it's not just Hebrew poetry, but uh, any poetry. One of the distinctives of poetry is all the white space on the page. <laughs> and the point of that is to say that, Hebrew, that poetry is brief. It's terse. It, uh, it's not narrative. It doesn't spell out details and long explanations. It says it in a, in a short and a brief kind of way. And so you have to be careful to recognize in these compact expressions uh, what are we meant to see in all of that? In all of that, there'll be symbolic languages, uh, figurative language that is used, symbols of, of uh, worship and different things like that. What are we intended uh, to understand by that? And one of the most outstanding distinctives of Hebrew poetry is that it's not based on rhyme or rhythm like our poetry is. Hebrew poetry is based on parallelism. So you'll notice in the Psalms, like in Proverbs, you have two lines. You have a line and then another line. The next verse, a line and another line. Now sometimes you'll have a what's called a tricola, three lines, and you'll have a line and then two lines underneath that. And the, the idea then is to find out how does this second line, or in some cases the second and third line, how does the second line re, um, relate to the first line? How is it informing that? Is it just extending the thought? Is it giving uh, a contrasting thought? Is it defining the first line for us? Is it defining it further for us? Um, those kinds of considerations, it's a huge area of study that's been done to, to uh, understand Hebrew poetry better. So you have the terseness, the brevity of the, of the Hebrew poetry. You have uh, the symbolic language that is used, and you have this parallelism, and you have to keep that in mind as you read through. And so we give Psalm 133, 121, Psalm 23, of course, uh, the best-known psalm in the Psalter, uh, as examples of how do we understand Hebrew poetry. Uh, it, it's extremely important to, to recognize that in that psalms are not narrative. They are not prose. It's not intended to be read quickly so you can get to the end and find the point. That's not how poetry works. It's more terse. It's more subtle than that. And so recognizing these factors helps us discern that. Now explain to us form criticism and psalm forms. What does all that mean? Yeah, this is a, a fascinating area of study. Um, the church has recognized for all of the centuries that there are different kinds of psalms. There are psalms that lament, there are psalms that are given to praise, 
Um, there, there are psalms that uh, curse the enemies or call for a curse on the enemies. Um, there are psalms that instruct and talk about the law of the Lord, and things, different kinds of psalms. Well, uh, more than 100 years ago now, a critical scholar um, who in so many ways we would not endorse uh, his, his theology, but he did some research, his name was Herman Gunkel, he did research on the forms and the structures of the Psalms, and what he was able to do is identify objectively that there are forms that the psalmists themselves followed. So like if we wrote a limerick, there would be a certain standard approach to how that goes with so many um, steps in the meter and so on. But so, but so with Hebrew poetry, laments had a certain structure. Praise psalms had a certain structure. Individual songs of grateful praise at a certain structure, and so on. Now, the psalmists do not follow those structures um, slavishly, and they can um, make alterations with it. They can even combine psalm forms, or they can find no discernible form at all. But still, these forms are discernible. Um, so the next several chapters of the book, we, we explain that it's at some length. So praise psalms, for example. The form typically is you'll have a call to praise. Come, let us praise the Lord. And then the next in the psalm, you'll find cause or reason for praise, for he has done wondrous things or something like that. So you have a call to praise, you have cause or reason for praise, and then you have a conclusion, or a renew, which is usually a renewed call to praise. So it'll say again, come, let us praise the Lord. So you have that form that is um, typically followed. In the Lament Psalms, they're marked by a direct address. O Lord, my God, or O Shepherd of Israel. It starts out with a direct address to God. And then it'll express a brief lament or complaint. And Sometimes those laments and complaints go on for a while. But then it'll move to a section of confidence where the psalmist expresses his trust in God. And then it'll move to the next section where he makes a petition. And that's really the part of the Lament Psalms, where he makes his petition to God, and then it'll conclude with praise. So you have direct address, lament, confidence, petition, and uh, conclusion or praise. Now, recognizing those forms is extremely helpful. Often when people not only read, but teach or preach the Psalms, the challenge is to find what is the flow of thought here. And so what we've tried to demonstrate is that many of these psalms follow certain forms, and so the outline or the progression of thought of the psalms is right there for us. And it's extremely helpful in uh, working our way through the psalms and following the, uh, the train of thought. Now, <clears throat> I want you to dive into this one, Fred. This sounds fascinating. Uh, praise Psalms, chapter 8. Uh, you mentioned Psalm 117. Uh, explain praise psalms. Okay, a praise psalm is a, they're often called hymns or praise psalms, same expression is used often in describing them. Um, but this is a psalm that is given to praise. It's not given to lament. It's given specifically to praise. The form of a praise psalm typically is Call to praise, reason for praise, and then a renewed call to praise. And so we give Psalm 119, or 117 as an example, because that's the shortest of the psalms, but it has those, those elements. So it begins, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. There's your call to praise. And then it gives the reason for praise. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So you have the call to praise, then you have the reason for praise, and then it closes with a renewed call to praise. Praise the Lord. So you recognize those forms. Um, it is extremely helpful. And, and I mentioned the uh, Lament Psalms. I think it's one of the next chapters here in the book. Um, a point here is important there as well. Lament Psalms, there's been increasing talk about that in recent days, about learning to lament to God and complain to God, because David did. And that's right enough. But what we try to emphasize is that the Lament Psalms all, 
are marked by praise as well. They have a specific praise section. And we emphasize the point that it would be inappropriate to complain to God apart from praise and apart from trust. And so we, we, we try to emphasize these elements of the Psalms that are important for understanding them. What do you want people, give me a quick 30-second wrap-up, Fred. What do you want people to take from your book? We want them to, to read through it carefully and understand that there are um, factors that are important for understanding the Psalms rightly. We want them to see Jesus in the Psalms, but we want them to see Jesus rightly, not in their imagination. We want them to see that the book really is a book about Jesus, but how do we get there? And these various approaches to the Psalms and understanding the various elements that make it up all play a part in interpreting the Psalms correctly. My guest has been Fred Zaspel, pastor at Reformed Baptist Church in Franconia, Franconia, Pennsylvania, suburb of Philadelphia, uh, and the book, make sure you get it, How to Read and Understand the Psalms. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Have a wonderful week ahead. We're back right. next weekend Appreciate for more. And uh, God bless you richly. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.